We're going to be talking to Abra Behrens, uh, who's in Michigan. Um, we, we talked to her before with her first book, which was called Roughage. And uh, this is her second book called Grist. So I said to her, you know, you have a way with titles of your books. <laughs> <laughs> and you said your husband actually came up with this one, right? He did. Uh, you know, I think I originally wanted it to be called Fodder because uh, I was thinking about, like, how how do we continue this sort of, like, play on on words um, that, we, right. that we did with Ruffage, but he thought that was just a bridge too far. So, <laughs> so it uh, really encouraged me to look at, uh, at some other words, and um, this is the one we settled on. And at first I was nervous that it would be too specific for milling flour, um, but it really felt like a great, uh, a great sort of encapsulation of everything. Now, help, help our listeners to understand what makes grist grist. Uh, so grist is, uh, it's really a, a continuation of the practical guide idea where uh, there's a series of ingredients that I'm excited about cooking with and that I hope other people will get excited about cooking with, but that also maybe feel um, a little daunted by, you know, in the same way that with vegetables, I think people kind of feel like, oh, I'm supposed to eat more vegetables, but I don't really, I don't feel excited <laughs> about that. Um, I think the same is true for whole grains and for beans and, and legumes, that there's kind of this idea that it's a kind of health food alone um, and wanted to really kind of lean into that and explore all the different ways that you can use these uh, really, you know, wonderful ingredients in a practical way. No, of course, no. we're great fans of, of grains, beans, seeds, and legumes. Um, but I mean, it, it's. I, I just want to warn our listeners that th- this book is such an enormous undertaking that we're not going to even get but a peek into all the, the information that's in it. Um, well, what, you what? say 140 plus recipes and 160 plus variations. Um, that should lead us into explain how you organized this. Sure. I mean, in terms um, of yeah, the variations and so forth. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the way that my brain tends to think, and I think this is true for a lot of people who work in the food industry, is that we, at least for me, I think about an ingredient that I want to use, and it's an ingredient often that um, we're growing at our farm or that a neighbor's farm is growing or that's very, you know, typical to the season, things like that. And so um, once that uh, ingredient kind of presents itself, then I think about how, what sort of preparation techniques do I want to use? And so sometimes that means, um, you know, boiling it versus slow cooking it or stewing it or, um, you know, milling it into flour and then using the flour in that way. And so that was the kind of structure that we had created with roughage and that I wanted to continue with these ingredients. Um, And so from there, uh, you know, you've got your your hero, your ingredient, and you've got the way that you want it to to present on the plate. And then it's really just about what goes with it. And, um, you know, roughage was so much about vegetables, which often have a specific season, you know, asparagus season or tomato season, um, and these grains and legumes are really much more of um, their pantry staples. They have their own seasons as well. They're agricultural products, but, you know, they're dried and preserved so that we can call on them throughout the year. And so I wanted each recipe to have some sort of variation on the season. So, you know, if we're going to be using lentils all year round, the vegetables that go with it or the style of the dish would change in the spring versus in the fall and so on. So that's kind of how the variations came to be. They're a continuation of the idea from Ruffridge, but with more seasonality than we presented in that book. Uh, let's, back, let's back up for just a second because I was super intrigued as to how the, the beans and the peas that really are beans, not peas, got all got all the way from Africa to to Michigan. Mm, and, uh, yes. That, that, that in and of itself 
is a remarkable story because, as, as, as best I can recall, Michigan, Michigan was not a slave state. So that, so no, that, so uh, so no, a, never so were. A, um, a couple of but, pieces so, missing. I'm sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, so just, yeah, I mean, a lot of these ingredients, as I was researching them and looking into the best ways to prepare and present them, so often I was looking at where they originated, and, and very few of them originated in this hemisphere, and so they got here somehow. And um, there's a wonderful piece in The Atlantic, I'm blanking on the author's name right now, um, that talks about how these seeds were woven into hair or into uh, seams of clothing to make that transport with enslaved people during the slave trade. And... Um, you know, it gets to this idea that something dawned on me as I was writing that all of these ingredients are seeds and and just the sheer power of a seed and how different that is from a vegetable. You know, a tomato, we eat the fruit of the plant that is encouraging us to eat it, to capture those seeds and to pass it on, ideally with some fertilizer, so that it'll grow another generation of tomato plants. And, and all of these ingredients are those individual seeds. And just the importance of that um, historically for our species, you know, to, to be pulled from your, your homeland and to kind of recognize that and the thing that you're able to, you know, kind of squirrel away um, are, are foodstuffs that would support you. And then, um, you know, looking at – and I have not done the level of research that someone like Michael Twitty has done um, – about, oh, right. you know, the antebellum period and, and how food was used on plantations and things like that. So really there are, are people with more authority than I. Um, but this idea that, you know, making food to sustain a population and the role that food plays in, in control and, and perseverance and um, cultural preservation and cultural development. And then you're right, Michigan was not a slave state, but you know, the entire country benefited from exactly. this terrible practice. And, um, and there was, you know, a massive migration. So for us, and I, I spoke about this with um, Mrs. Jerry Hebron, who runs um, Oakland Avenue Farm in, in Detroit. Um, you know, she grew up in Detroit, but with deep roots to the south after her family migrated in the great migration as people were looking for a better a better life and and more fair jobs and things like that so when she started growing um food at her farm she asked her community what they wanted her to grow and they said you know according to her beans greens and tomatoes and so she started growing crowder peas because uh she knew them from the summer she spent with her family in, I th I'm pretty sure it was Mississippi, but in the South for sure. Um, and, and it was really embraced by, by her community there in Detroit. So I think that food, you know, is not um, this universal salve that sometimes we talk about, but it certainly touches all of these larger socioeconomic issues that we're all kind of confronted with. Now, what, how, how, how did the... How did the beans get from the south to the Detroit area? Was it was it was it? You used the term the Great Migration, but what was it? The Underground Railroad involved in that some some way? So the Great Migration was later on, um, and it was oh, okay, it, during okay. the Jim during the Jim Crow era when um, you know after after the Civil War, after emancipation, um, but when there was still effectively, you know, sanctioned segregation in the South, um, as well as the industrialization of the North. And so uh, a lot of the freed, enslaved, formerly enslaved population moving North in seek of better wages and, um, quite frankly, less violence. And so that was when um, a lot of folks moved from the South to the North, settled, grew communities there, for uh, Jerry, the way she conveyed it to me was that um, she started her farm and then, you know, literally had uh, field peas saved from the one of the trips she went down to visit her family in Mississippi. So this was a much more recent um, movement of these seeds, but they were grown in drought conditions in Mississippi, thinking that that would be 
they needed a, a field pea with a shorter season because Michigan does not have as long a growing season as Mississippi does, and also with concerns about drought issues um, that that they were also experiencing in Mississippi. So is there a flourishing agriculture in, in Michigan? I, I, find, yes. it hard to, I find it hard to pick, picture having once for a period of a year and a half or so doing some work for General Motors. And Gen, Gen, General Motors said fields, but they were fields for testing automobiles. They were not <coughs> fields for growing beans. Right. Um, no, I mean, and I think that's one of the great misconceptions of um, the Midwest is that it's just corn and soy or it's just, you know, a couple of crops. But Michigan is the second most agriculturally diverse state in the nation, second to California. We have a tremendous okay. agricultural community um, that is, you know, everything from from vegetables and our fruit farms that are grown the on the, uh, you know, primarily... Yeah, cherries on the west side of the state that are, you know, get some weather protection from the lake. There's tremendous bean and grain infrastructure over in the thumb. Uh, there's a giant asparagus uh, industry kind of through the middle of the state. Uh, still a fair amount of dairy, although less so, you know, and certainly less so than Wisconsin. Wisconsin has a different topography that has always been better suited to cattle and to uh, grazing animals. But we still have some dairy here um, and things like that, yeah. And then the fish, and, um, obviously. Uh, apples, too. I mean, it was responsible, if I recall correctly, for a great deal of experimentation in um, and providing trees that would support apple production in that cold con. Yes. Yeah, we have a tremendous fruit industry um, because we get some weather protection from Lake Michigan. So uh, the weather or the winter weather on the west side of the state tends to get more snow but not be as cold um, because as cold air moves across the country, it picks up a bunch of moisture from the lake as it travels across, hits the landmass, drops that moisture in the form of snow, and that cloud cover often insulates. Uh, us, so we don't get those, you know, it's not like Minnesota that gets so, so cold all the time. Um, and then we also get kind of longer, uh, like later spring blooms, which is good because then we don't get hit by frost as often, and also generally a longer fall because of it. Now, you, you are one of the few people that I know. See, I'm fascinated with the appearance the visuals of beans, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you picked up you pick up on that and talk about these. And I mean, I'm I'm fascinated with um, if you get these beans that are like red and white, and then you cook them and they turn out green. I mean, it's it's a very complicated uh, um, vegetable, isn't it? It is in a lot of ways, um, you know, and they're just beautiful. I think. Uh, yes, you know, that's what they, I think too. They're always, you know, it always does feel a little bit like a shame that they're so, the coloring is so stark and striking in the uncooked version. Um, and then uh, as you cook them, they can kind of blend to a um, a version of kind of, yeah, brown or gray. Um, but they are just beautiful. And there's so much diversity in them, too. There's... Um, you know, some that are, are bright, different colors, and other ones that are, you know, just jet black and, and things like that. Well, I, I can remember when when we were in way southern Tuscany in Italy. There's a lake there. I think it's Lake Trasimeno or something like that. And they they had such amazing varieties of beans, Diff- different colors, dots all over them. Yeah, and that's the thing is I think, you know, Tuscany is is also such an agricultural center um, and such a food center. And so I think it's so interesting that um, often people kind of write off beans or legumes as, um, you know, if you could eat a meat protein, that's the more prized cut. Um, And so beans are definitely more of the kind of ingredients of – of, you know, peasant farmers and things like that. But then you look at these centers that are centers for food production and, and really food specialization, life like Tuscany and beans play a huge role in that. I just, I just created a, a dish 
50 percent lentils and 30 percent quinoa mm, delicious and, 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 and i poured bacon fat over it oh dear <laughs> I mean, that's the thing that always means a little bit. Um, there's also, it's the same with vegetables, it's kind of this idea that there's a, a piety of eating them, you know, but they also benefit from a nice healthy amount of fat to help, uh, you know, make them super flavorful and also absorb those micronutrients and things like that too. You know, a lot of people really don't know the differences that you describe between these different categories. Um, is there some way you can just kind of briefly tell us what's a legume, um, uh, the different categories of, of that, plus beans common, um, beans, fava, soy, bread, and, and then you go on to chickpeas. Everybody seems to be in love with chickpeas these days. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, well, I love them too. Um, lentils. We just had um, field peas, and they were specified as not um, not beans, but as field peas, and I don't know quite why. And then you do, you have a whole part of the book about grains, barley, wheat, buckwheat. I mean, I've never really been there. We must have spent an enormous amount of time exploring uh, baking and, and creating cooked foods from all these grains and milling them and so forth. And oats, you're a fan of oats. And then you get into yeah. all the rice and, and the different rice uh, forms, wild rice, which is not rice at all, really, uh, risotto, um, seed grains. Uh, this is this, what I'm saying is this book is so filled with information. A freak I'm looking at, which is one of my most favorite things. Um, wheat berries. I mean, how should somebody use this book with all this? I mean, somebody's going to have to sort through <laughs> all the, the distinctions with all these things. Do you have any rule of thumb for sorting through? Yes. I mean, like, so I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so I think the biggest thing to recognize is that some of these distinctions are semantic. And so you know, on one hand, don't worry too much about it. The difference between, you know, a common bean and a broad bean and, uh, you know, a field pea is, is not critical to the understanding of how to cook them in the same way that understanding how to cook asparagus versus squash, you know, tends to be a little bit more critical in the execution. Um, so on one hand, don't worry about it. On the other hand, um, I do think it's valuable to learn a little bit about some of the agronomy behind these ingredients, um, if for no other reason than just to understand sort of where they fit on the plate and also where they fit in our larger society. So in general, the book is broken up into two different uh, sections. There's, uh, there's legumes, which people can also refer to as pulses, um, which are, uh, for me, the main distinction on that is that it's something that has a higher protein content. And so it's a plant-based protein. Um, That said, all of the ingredients in this book have some level of protein in it. People don't think of rice as being, uh, you know, a protein plant, uh, you know, in the same way that we think about beans or soybeans or whatever as being that, but it does have it. And I think that's important because there seems to be this obsession with how much protein we get on a daily basis. And I think most of us get much more protein than we really need. Um, Yeah, you say that in the book, and, you know, it recalled me. We just had an obsession because Peter lost some weight with his doctor, and the doctor, the first thing we looked at was how much protein, I mean, measuring how much protein he was eating. You know, I mean, we all get plenty of protein. We do, and and there's so there's so many protein dense ingredients. I I do really think that um, it's an important conversation to understand. But I'm not a dietitian. I can't give you a recommendation on how much you should be getting. But I think that if you're eating a well balanced uh, meal of primarily scratch ingredients and raw ingredients, you're going to get enough protein. Um, and so, but that said, a lot of people are looking for 
other ways to get, you know, a protein passing or to have it replace a meat or a dairy protein on the plate. So that's, for me, the primary distinction. And then within that, there's lots of different ingredient categories like beans versus chickpeas versus lentils and all of those things. And, um, you know, they're more alike to each other than they are to some of the grains, but they're also distinct enough that they seem to warrant their own chapter. And part of the difference in separating out the common beans versus the broad beans and things like that was mostly because there's so much diversity in these larger categories that I I honestly just wanted to have more space to talk about them. (laughs) Well, you you have uh, these little graphics, which are very useful. Um, You call it notes, and you will give the botanical name of this ingredient, the place of origin, for example, the fertile crescent, uh, the top global producers, Canada, France, and China. I'm talking about uh, this piece of sativum at this point. Gluten-free, yes. Source of protein, 25%. I mean, this is a lot of research. <laughs> Congratulations. Frida, Thank you. You. You, you remember the first time we saw chickpeas growing on a tree? Oh, yeah. I never realized I'd eaten chickpeas my whole life. I never realized they came bundled up like little twins. You know, with yeah, <laughs> That's where I really credit Lucy Engelman, who did the illustrations for the book. She also did the illustrations for Refuge. Um, you know, it felt there's some of the reason why I wanted to include those facts about the top global producers and things like that is just so people have always trying to reconnect these ingredients to how they're grown. And so where are these plants coming from? Where did they come from originally? How does that shape their cultural context? But then also with Lucy's illustrations, I wanted to find a way to both leverage her extraordinary talent, um, but also to show these are our plants, you know, and we see the seeds, but there's a whole plant that grows in order to produce those seeds. And what do those plants look like? And so, you know, and she just did such a magnificent job with that um, and really brought those to life, I think. so, yeah, so that's legumes. Um, again, for me, the primary distinction is that they're primarily uh, high, denser in protein, and that seems important to people. They're also all gluten-free, and so that also seems important to people right now in our modern understanding of food. Um, and then for the second chapter, you know, section, which is on grains, um, there's it's a giant category and even you know there's all of these words that get used that um you know i felt confused by and so most of the information i provide is information that i wanted at some point or another um you know how did you go about testing the flowers i mean that that really is like a whole another um encyclopedia (laughs) Well, and that's why there's very few baking recipes um, because I am a passable baker, but I'm by no – there are people who are much more skilled at baking than I am. And and these specialty flowers really require a lot of attention. I know. And We've interviewed of, people uh, who've written books on them, yeah, and it's, you, there's a lot yeah. of adjusting. You have to do a lot of baking. Yeah, and you have to feel really confident with it. And, um, you know, there's a book that came out recently called Mother Grains that I think does a beautiful job with that. And so I yeah, didn't I, I want... tried to get a copy of that, and, and uh, uh, she gave a, a, a presentation, and I thought maybe she she uh, could redo it, but she's back. She's in academia, and she's like, she, she's overwhelmed with work at this point. But I thought that was yeah. important. That book was important. Yeah, I'm excited about Kernza as well. You mm-hmm. have it in your book. Yeah, we are too. So, and that's you know that's really how so many of the grains kind of came into my awareness or my consciousness was that um, I work at Grainer Farm, which has about 400 acres of small grain production, and so it was literally asking Wes and Andrew, the the farmers who manage that program 
what does small grain mean? You know, like they kept saying it, and it's an industry term. Um, and it basically is, is you know, that category of cereal and non-cereal grains that are not um, beans, corn, or soy. Um, and so they're, they tend to be a smaller seed head. They have different infrastructure needs, things like that. Um, and then we started growing Kernza, uh, I think back in 2018, as a collaboration project with the Land Use Institute. Um, and it's about kind of this looking at our current agricultural context and, um, you know, the movement towards uh, perennial grains and, and how we can have a more environmentally and financially stable grain system in our, in our country. Um, and so it feels very exciting. Um, now, we, we shouldn't forget that, um, that you also do uh, farmer profiles uh, which are really interesting because it gets down to the actual functioning of farmers in today's world. And uh, you interview your cousin, right, Matt Barron? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yep. uh, it mean, it's tough, and it's getting tougher all the time, um, farming. Um, uh, is, is, did I read a, a statistic in your book or some other book about how we had X number of farms a certain period of time, and then and we're yeah. down to yeah, okay. Uh, so, yeah. but how did you pick these people, and what what did you learn? Mm-hmm. So, so much of roughage was about conveying my personal experience with growing vegetables and how it shaped how I use these ingredients. Um, and so, as I started diving into this book, I was thinking, how do we do that? for these things because we don't, nobody, even if you have a garden, like a big garden, you're not going to grow wheat. It just doesn't make any sense um, because <laughs> you'd have to grow, you have to grow so much of it and then dry it and then mill it into, like, it's just, it's sort of silly. And so, but that to me speaks to this larger issue, which is that a hundred years ago, about 30% of our population were farmers. And according to the 2017, which is getting a bit older now, um, about 3% of our population are farmers. And so that's a tremendous drop-off. And some of those oh, reasons yeah. are good, and some of them are not great. And, um, but I, the, the aspect of that that I'm the most fascinated by is the fact that people who are not farmers or farm workers uh, have very little interaction with growers. And I think that is especially true with the folks who are growing grains and legumes um, because they're an even more segregated part of that population. So, um, you know, very often rural, although not exclusively, uh, very often selling on a commodity market as opposed to a farmer's market or a direct-to-consumer market. And so we just don't interact with them. And I think that if the, the number one thing we can do in our society is to develop empathy for what other people are going through. Well, how do we ask people to care about the farm bill and about, you know, agricultural exactly. policy when they don't interact with these folks? And yeah, so I what I want to do that. Do, and then, yeah, I mean, it seems to be a really broken system. <laughs> it is. And or it, it, it's, broken for a lot of folks and it's really beneficial for some others um i think is the truth of it and and those folks that it is benefiting are incentivized to not want to see it changed um and so what i wanted to do with these farmer profiles was i you know just was thinking how do i present these stories and i was like well let's just let the farmers speak um and so i was very grateful that chronicle uh, and my editor sarah billingsley allowed the number of pages that she did for these interviews and I expected them to be really you know whittled down and they are they were not they're they're hardly touched at all from what I submitted um and I think it goes to show that these conversations are really important and just about you know if anybody who has run a business or understands how to you know read a profit and loss statement um were to really understand that a grower, you know, pulls their crop out of a field in, say, July for wheat or August for rice, then they take on the responsibility of storing it. They sold it on contract uh, for X amount of dollars, uh, and then that crop is picked up in 
may and the the person who's buying it can change the price based on anything and that they don't get paid again until August when the next top is already coming yeah, it's out of tough. the It's really tough. I mean, it's... It it's doesn't more, make any who, sense. Who, who, who thinks it makes sense is my question. Uh, I mean, I think that's the frustrating part, and we could go really deep into the weeds on this, but, um, you know, most growers, most of the, like, you know, quote-unquote farm businesses in this country are multinational corporations. And so they have an economy of scale that works the system well. And uh, and so you see a lot of the mid-sized growers really being squeezed. And then you found some folks who are on the direct-to-consumer market who are doing okay because they can charge a higher amount. And so it's just like everything in our society. It's stratifying to the edges, and the middle is really being hollowed out. Um, and so that was kind of how I wanted to go about finding folks to contribute with both people that I knew, like obviously I know my cousin and um, I know some of his, you know, struggles. And for all intents and purposes, he's what most people think of as a rural grower, you know, middle-aged, middle-class white man um, and, you know, runs a small business. Well, who else is farming? And that's where I think that interview with Jerry Hebron is very important because she's also a, you know, quote unquote bean grower in Michigan. And she runs an urban farm in Detroit that is a social justice farm. And they're, they're vastly different operations that are, you know, run for vastly different reasons. I think that's a really important conversation to have. I also think that there are a lot of invisible jobs along the grain chains, um, and that's why I wanted to include folks like Carl Wagner, who's an agronomist and seed cleaner, um, who works with us in our area in southwest Michigan, northern Indiana, and then also uh, Hallie Westking, who is really, you know, at the forefront of our artisan grain community out in Ridgeway, Wisconsin, um, you know, she and her partner, her husband and her uh, business partner are farmers primarily. You know, they, they are growing grain. Um, I forget the acreage of their farm. But then also they just recently bought a mill. And so much of this was informed by the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and I think we all remember when there wasn't flour on the shelves. And that's not something that happens in this country very often. And so all of a sudden, you know, these regional mills and the ability to pivot became so obviously important. And I think that our food system as a whole is uh, very efficient and very productive, but it is also almost ruthlessly so. And so when, and it's very fragile because of that. And so if, something, you know, like a global pandemic uh, comes along, we're really sort of stuck without a paddle uh, because we don't have some of that nimbleness. And, you know, that was happening at the same time that Mike Bloomberg uh, said that comment about, like, how hard can it be to be a farmer? You just stick a seed in the ground. And it just shows (laughs) that there's this massive disconnect. Um, and so it, I really just, that was the point of these profiles, um, was to contextualize these ingredients to hopefully develop You're a so shared thoughtful. Recipe. The whole book is so thoughtful. It's so well-researched. Um, Thank it's, you. Again, it's, it's Abra Barron's listener, and it's called Grist. And, I mean, it's just, it, it approaches this category of food from just about every angle imaginable. And uh, I, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book, Abra, and congratulations. Much success with this book. People should all have it, truly. Thank and then you, you so hit, much. You hit a point where people now need to know about how to deal with this. I mean, Sweetheart, I, I, think, I think you can summarize it in one word. Yeah. Liter, liter, lyrical. Lyrical. Oh, thank this, you this, so this, much. This, this, <laughs> I'll go with that. That's good. So, Abra, thank you so much for coming back and talking to us again. And oh, um, I just can't wait for your next book. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It's uh, currently Good morning, food lovers everywhere. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Hayes. And we have two really significant 
books to bring you today. Well, rather, we're bringing you the authors um, in, in dialogue with us of these books. The first one is Abra Behrens, who we interviewed for her last book called Roughage, uh, which is a funny title for a really good book. And, and this current book is called Grist, and it's, it's described as a, um, a, a reference on beans, grains, seeds, and legumes, and how to identify them and what their characteristics are, how to prepare them, uh, when to eat them, and it's, it's a really thorough, thorough book, and, and easy to read and wonderful. Anyhow, here's opera. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Um, Another great book coming up, or rather the interview with the um, the captain, author, co-author, um, Dylan Thuris, who's uh, with this operation called Gastro Obscura. Um, Gives you kind of a clue, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a guide to food adventures, as, as it's described. But I, I get their, their newsletter in my uh, inbox, and it cheers up my day. Uh, things you never knew that you didn't know or didn't know you needed to know, but the book is absolutely a delight. Um, so here's Dylan Doris. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I'm not usually a fan person, but <laughs> I have to tell you that I am a gastro obscura and Alice obscura fan. I have it in my inbox every single day. That's, that's really um, nice to hear. I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that. <laughs> Listeners, we're going to be talking to Dylan Thurrett, who's a kind of a magician, because he <laughs> put together this book. But, I mean, I, I, I haven't gone through every single item on it, but I don't even want one. to skip an item, because it's every <laughs> single thing is, is like... Anyhow, it's called... Uh, well, we're, who we're talking to, in case I just said this, Dylan Thoris, and and the book is called Gastro Obscura, uh, a food adventures guide, and and actually, you actually do tours now. Well, we'll talk about that later. But anyhow, yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> and, and Dylan, this is my kind of thing. Dylan just told us that he's Norwegian when. I know perfectly well if his name is Dylan, he has to be Welsh. Huh. <laughs> well, my parents mixed and matched a little bit. They, they didn't mind. <laughs> they didn't mind. Um, Anyhow, I'm so glad I mean, to hear you is... like what we're doing with gastro. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm well, excited to be know, talking I mean, to you about it. Unless our listeners don't know anything about this. Sure. Let's, sure. I mean, let's start with what is Atlas Obscura and what is Gastro Obscura. Sure. Sure. So, so about ten years ago, um, my co-founder Josh and I started a company called Atlas Obscura, and the idea was when we were looking at uh, travel guides and and finding places to go in the world, we found that a lot of the stuff we were seeing was the same, and it wasn't what we were looking for. We were sort of both of us had had done some travel and had a real interest in the world's unique, unusual. Locations, and sometimes that could be a small museum, and sometimes that could mean something like a giant flaming hole in the middle of Turkmenistan that's been on fire for 50 years. It, it, so it didn't, it wasn't one thing we were looking for so much as just a way to find really interesting places with great stories. And so we started this thing called Atlas Obscura, where people could submit suggestions. They could say, "Here's a thing that I think is really interesting, not many people know about, and they should." And we made a kind of map uh, that people could use. And what year are we talking about? This, it launched in 2009. So now it's, it's you know, oh, it's been around for almost, yeah, a long time. And um, and that's how it began. It began as this kind of um, almost, I would say, a, an art project or at least a passion project because I was um, going to go live in Budapest for a year. 
And that's sort of how it started. My, my co-founder and I began talking about, well, let's make the kind of travel resource that we want in our lives. And it, since then, it's grown into this database of, you know, 20,000 places. We have oh, – I'm actually sure at a, our, okay. our big retreat. We've got, you know, 50 employees, and we run – uh, trips all around the world. Uh, you know, before the pandemic hit, we were running about 120 trips a year um, to almost every continent. Uh, and oh, I see. We so, do, people signed, we've, so people yeah. signed up to be members of Obscura. They they could uh, join our email list. They could okay. um, sometimes people just you know use the site to search. They would search and say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to be traveling to Peru what's some interesting things in Peru? And we would tell them, okay, go check out this. It's called the Quechua Chaca, the last Incan bridge. And it's this bridge woven from grass. It's rewoven every year. And it you know, uh, goes across a 100-foot gorge. And so that was kind of how um, Atlas Obscura worked and started. And then a couple of years ago, uh, actually at this point, like four, we thought, you know, our reason for existing is to give people a sense of, wonder in the world, to, to, for, to give people that sense of, wow, the world is really big and it's incredible. And we've always said that you didn't have to travel far to have that experience, that you could have that experience of surprise and wonder, you know, going around your corner. If, if you knew the right story or if you knew what you were looking for, you could have that really anywhere. And what we realized is the closest place that you can find that is looking down at your dinner plate, looking at the foods that you eat, that every Aha, meal is a story. Came in. Exactly. It's a story of uh, uh, travel. It's a story of, of international uh, combination. You know, almost everything. But you probably had is, an interest in food even before that. I'd that love to eat it. I figured you were uh, you were uh, interested. Yeah. Yeah. No. And 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 and. Um, and I have an interest in storytelling more than almost more than anything, almost more than specifically travel or food. It's about sort of how the things in our lives, the places, the meals, uh, contain incredible, interesting stories. And so that's that's what Gastro is all about. It's about the sort of world's most interesting restaurants, most interesting recipes. It's it's forgotten ingredients, um, and it kind of takes you on a world tour, telling you about those things. Well, you, it, well this book is like. This is exactly a Bible for me. I love it. I don't know how you mean for people to use it. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not, what I'm doing is just reading my way through. Yeah. I haven't gone through the whole thing yet because every time you turn a page, there's some new uh, revelation I mean, of, of the stuff. It's just incredible. <laughs> Um, People can but, use it however they like. I think hopefully it inspires a, a certain kind of um, excitement about the world and the food in the world and what's out there. No, it, it, it's really intriguing that if you if you were to look at ethnic representation, it seems seems to me there were a hell of a lot of Irish people in your book. <laughs> huh. That's what, what, is that, That's what does that tell you? I'm not sure, but I don't know if I'd notice that. I'm not sure. I don't know that I noticed that actually. <laughs> In fact, I'm not sure I would actually prioritize the Irish food experience. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting. I wasn't suggesting you would ne- you would necessarily mean it was justification for going to Ireland. Although we always seem to have a good time when we go there. Oh yeah, we uh, love you, it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you What do you like to eat when you're in Ireland? But they eat, but they eat and drink in curious ways. We 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 love Irish soda bread. Oh sure, sure. What about? Uh, well, you know, I mean, what, what? actually, Irish cuisine is like a combination of so many things right now. It's not like what you used to think. It's the same thing with English. I mean, the English, the British table is so different now um, well and, and, and in your book what i liked was that you you went to all these really peculiar places yeah southeast asia and all this stuff that i didn't know anything about i mean i know most of the other stuff but, oh i just turned a page this has been i mean you you hit on all these things that fascinated me this is this uh the the mother of all strawberries 
yeah. I've, tr- I've tried to deal with people so I could just get one taste of one of these strawberries. And you know, they're like $15 a people. I mean, a not a person. Have you, have you ever managed it? You've ever Have you ever gotten your hands Never. I've one? never tasted one. I've talked to uh, Melissa's. I've talked to I think you'd have to go down to Chile to get to get your hands on one. I, I, I love stories of how um, how ingredients and, and, and specifically, you know, uh, particular produce kind of move around in the world and how someone, you know, comes back with the first, you know, what they then called gooseberries uh, uh, and then we now call kiwis. And how that becomes a commercial crop, you know, how we ended up. And with you did this actually. You did this in your book. You did it with apples. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought sure. apples? Um, they found some kind of wild apples. Where was it? The, I, I believe that's in the forest of, I want to say, Kazakhstan or Kyrgyz, Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, with um, some uh, Kurdistan or something like that. And, yeah, um, and course, yeah. And, we interviewed. Um, there, there is a. I don't know if you know this. There's a, uh, um, a group, uh, an organization called the Lost Apple Project. Yeah. And, yeah. And they, finding all of these these wild varieties oh, that yeah. it had. It, yeah. No, no, they're tracing back all the varieties of apples that have been lost. Yeah. And there were yeah. millions. But, but you pinpointed where the first apples. Were supposedly that's, found. That's what they, they think. Probably... And, Go ahead. That's what they think. I'm from I'm from Minnesota, where we where we make designer apples, <laughs> things like the Honeycrisp at the University of Minnesota. They have a huge program that basically, you know, sort of engineers uh, new apples. Uh, we've we've and, actually uh, interviewed one of the guys that runs that program. And, oh, have uh, you? Yeah. Oh yeah, and, and he. I mean, I, I can't even believe it. It takes like 20 years, and and he eats mm-hmm. has to taste apples every single time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like apples. Kill you. <laughs> I, I because I grew up in Minnesota. I also and I'm um you know I have a lot of Scandinavian in my family. I grew up eating a lot of things that I think only in retrospect that I realized weren't normal kind of like other people's kids' fare. But I, I grew up eating a lot of pickled herring and like lessa. Um, which is like that really thin kind of crepe-like um, yeah, uh, dough what, and crumb cracker. What's the dried fish called? Oh, Luda, you're thinking of lutefisk. Lutefisk <laughs> 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 is an acquired taste. I'll tell you. It, it, it is you certainly know, is. That's what I heard. Now, I re- now, I'm, now on the same on the same tone. How about how about the haggis and the and the haggis chucking contest? See, well, the haggis. <laughs> so here's the thing. I'll make a distinction. I think haggis is actually tasty. I think lutefisk is a very acquired taste. And that's from someone who actually comes comes from that background. The funny thing about the haggis chucking competition is that it was invented as a joke. An Irish guy invented it to kind of poke fun at the Scottish. But instead what happened, because he pretended that he found like an ancient – text that, oh, there used to be this great competition where they would take a haggis and see who could throw it the farthest. (laughs) But what happened is everybody thought this was delightful. They invented this haggis-throwing competition, and when they found out it was totally made up, that there is no Scottish history of doing this ever, nobody (laughs) cared. They loved it so much that they just keep doing it. So now it is a tradition, which I think is a very funny story. It's a strange and funny food story. Well, the, the intriguing part about it is because, because what's, in, what's inside is well, not, not necessarily entirely savory for people. Is that you, first of all, before you chuck your haggis, you check it, you check it for holes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you want, yeah, you don't want it uh, exploding on impact. Yeah, totally, totally. That's well, right. back That's to right. this book. I mean, I want to say that not only do you trace all kinds of you, you organize it from geography and, and so forth and so on. Not only do you note uh, foods that are really kind of peculiar and, and unique to certain areas and the area themselves, you do festivals, you do yeah. uh, I mean, you do all kinds of stuff. And I mean, I would say 
some of the food festivals are the weirdest things. What's that one in um, is it India where they all get high? Oh, uh, well, you're talking about um, uh, drinking the, like, cannabis-infused uh, drink. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like the, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, but there was the other thing about bees. And years. Bees, bees that ate a certain kind oh, of rhododendron plant. Mad was honey. Was is one of my favorite stories because it has such a great uh, and documented historical lineage. So, yeah, in, in, there's a couple of places this happens. It happens in Nepal, but it also happens in Turkey near the Black Sea. And what happens is certain rhododendrons, certain species, uh, they produce something called a grayanotoxin, and it's a neurotoxin. And what will happen is normally this would be fine because human beings don't walk around eating rhododendrons particularly, uh, but the bees will you know, harvest all of their pollen from these particular rhododendrons with this neurotoxin, uh, or you might call it sort of a psychoactive uh, ingredient. And then, and then the honey itself becomes psychoactive. So if you take it, you, you feel very lightheaded. Sometimes you see hallucinations. And, um, and it, but it, in, a, in a big dose, it can be um, it can deadly. It can knock you unconscious. And the story yeah. I love about this is that back during the Roman era, era, this was happening then um, because it was all the ingredients were the same. The rhododendrons grew there. The environment was the same. Uh, the Romans were invading this area of Turkey, and there was a king, uh, King Mithridates, uh, I think was his name, who had this brilliant idea. On the Roman road that the Romans were invading on, he left big chunks of honeycomb just all over the place. And the Roman soldiers couldn't resist. It was, they're hungry, they're marching all day, Ah. ate this honeycomb, (laughs) and it caused them to hallucinate, to pass out. And then his army swept in and killed thousands of Roman soldiers. It was one of the great kind of um, sacks by by, uh, a non-Roman state. Uh, And it's like a famous kind of incident. And so, yeah, that's a really interesting example where, where kind of, you know, psychedelics and food kind of come together. And you they, you can still get mad honey. Um, you know, they sell it in the re- area. Although you should, I mean, be careful. It doesn't taste very good. It's quite bitter. And if you want to eat some, you should eat a very small amount, like a, a tiny <laughs> half a teaspoon. Seriously, because it really, you know, you can get sick. People, every year there's a few hundred cases of people getting quite ill um, from accidentally or purposely eating too much mad honey. But I love that story. I love stories that kind of combine food and history and and yeah well, you, you do and, it yeah. beautifully in this book and uh, uh, just explain like as simply as you can what this whole get of uh, obscura family is i mean it's like the, the, uh, you have people all over the world sending you information about this or what yeah, yeah. So, so as an organization, there's about 50 of us, and, and we do all kinds of things. We write things, and we make books, and we do trips. Can I have and dinner with you? <laughs> I would love that. What are we serving? Uh, who's? <laughs> yeah, yes, please. Uh, yeah, and so we we basically the idea across both Atlas Obscura and Gastro Obscura, it's just about finding. Wonder in the world. The world is a big, strange, amazing place, and it can be easy to forget that in an age of technology and the Internet. Maybe it feels like, oh, we all know about everything. But there's really this beautiful, vast uh, amount of stuff to, to discover and to learn about and to try out there. And so that's a lot of what we're, we're after. It's just helping people have that sense of like, oh, my gosh, there's, there's so much out there that I didn't know. Oh, there is. There is really. I mean, we've traveled quite a lot. Of yeah, this is, this yeah. has been the worst two years of my life with not being able to travel. Yeah, yeah agreed. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Before we, before, before we go, give our listeners a taste of some of the really obscure stuff. What's <laughs> mm, the really obscure stuff? Uh, There's a lot a, of really obscure it's stuff. A, yeah, it's a little bit. I mean, I thought the Knights Templar were, were pretty funny. Oh, they were oh, funny, yeah. yeah. That's, a good, that's a good one. So one, one thing we talk about actually in the book is um, 
sort of different kinds of historical diets. We talk about gladiator diets in the Roman era. And gladiators, by the way, didn't look like what people think. Of, like people think of gladiators as being these very ripped, yeah, like, they're super muscular. They, they load but, carbs. They carbo-loaded all the time. They didn't eat a lot of protein. They ate so much, like, bread and grain and, and beer. And, what, and so yeah. they, they, were, they would have been kind of hefty-looking guys. They had a thick layer of fat over, over their muscles. But uh, on the kind of opposite side of that, the Knights Templar, um, which were a kind of Catholic military order, yeah. they lived very, very long for the period at which they were alive. And part of that is because they had a very strict <laughs> diet. They, they did, yeah, they did not eat a lot. Well, you and, know, they say um, that now. People they, who do this, there's some kind of um, low-calorie cult that people do. Yeah, well, they, they um, were basically doing intermittent fasting before that was like a whole, a whole thing. But, you know, three, yeah, three days a week they would, would eat uh, meat, and then they had the rest were meatless days, and they'd have sort of, you know, bread and eggs. But they, were, they had a very strict um, like r- amount, you know, they were sort of very moderate rations when they drank wine, it was diluted and the amount was really small. So, and they lived a long time. I mean, so there's something, I guess there's something to it to not, you know, I, mean, I think there is something to it because people are going back to that idea. I mean, not for yeah. me. Yeah. I mean, I feel yeah. that if you have to be so restrictive, you might as well be dead. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm too much of a, uh, I don't know, Epicurean or, or Bon Vivant or, uh, you know, a hedonist maybe, but I, I enjoy food too much to be too, too, too fussy about that. Dylan, give us, give us one more for the, for the night. Uh, sure. I, so this is in the category of strange and interesting things you can try. And, uh, and maybe it's almost in the category of, of drugs, but not really because it only affects your tongue. So, there's two things. There's one from tropical West Africa called a miracle berry. And a miracle berry does something really interesting when you eat it. And you can order these things. Uh, and usually when you order them, they're in like lozenge or pill form. But is that the one that makes that. everything taste sweet? That is the one that makes everything taste sweet. And I tried this with my son, who's six, and we had a blast. We were t- tasting lemons and uh, sour cream and just trying this different stuff. And it was very, very interesting and fun. What's interesting is there's another, um, another plant uh, called uh, Jimena Silvestra, which does the exact opposite. It blocks out the entire oh, no. um, sweet. It's very interesting. So it, it, it masks all sweetness. So I tried everything from like ginger ale, which tasted basically like carbonated nothing with a light ginger fl- flavor. But but you really couldn't. It was wild. I tried a, 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 a very good beer, uh, and it was horrible. <laughs> it tasted so bad. I even tried maple syrup, and it almost was just like having <laughs> the texture of maple syrup in your mouth. And none of the flavor, because so much of the flavor of maple syrup, obviously, is its sweetness. So you could taste a little something that felt this was a little bit reminiscent, almost of um, sarsaparilla or like root beer, that kind of flavor, but with absolutely no sweetness. It was, so those are two sort of very interesting, um, almost food experiments, taste experiments that you can do at home. Both of these things you can order online; they're cheap, and it's a it's a it's an interesting way to spend an evening. <laughs> Yeah, they had the, the, the demo at um, the Fancy Food Show one year. I mean, I have no sweet tooth, and so therefore, I mean, that was the last thing I ever wanted to try. Oh, interesting. But my grandchildren, I kept promising them would do that, and I never got it. So, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I, 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 the thing that worried me was how long it lasted. It lasts a long time, but you can't tell oh, how long yeah. it lasts. Half an hour or so, maybe an hour max. Oh, it goes away longer, pretty, yeah. pretty quick. But speaking of um, Ireland, maybe this one will satisfy you, uh, Peter, which is, uh, are you aware, did you read about bog butter? Are you aware of bog butter? I, I read about it, but I, I didn't stick to recall. So recall. Well, basically, you know, they have all these, the, the bogs, all these um, peat bogs in Ireland, and they have a very... Oh, yeah, I read about that. That's interesting. And, yeah, and so people would basically bury the – it was almost like a refrigerator, but then people, like, forgot where they put it. And so people have found 3,000-year-old bog butter, and they've tasted it. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they said it didn't taste great, is what they said. Yeah. Braver, braver, braver than you and me. 
I, mean, yeah. I wonder <laughs> why they would really do that. Let me taste it, actually. Yeah, but that, that was interesting. Well, I can't Oh, there's so that. much in this world. And you haven't finished. Yeah. This is the first volume of this. I'm sure you're going to go on and on and on. I even know stuff you haven't even hit on yet in this book. Oh, yeah. Which oh, I'll yeah. send there's, you. Well, I would love having, that. There's really an endless amount. Well, we're going <laughs> so, yeah. gonna, to gonna sit down for a strip steak. With mushrooms on the side. That's that's, that's mm. our excuse. Wild mushrooms. Yeah. Sounds wild, delicious. Wild mushrooms. Ooh. So so that's... what you what you're up to? I don't know, but I'm sure I'm sure it'll be interesting, and it was a delight. Well, Dylan, for us, it's been wonderful meeting you, and uh, I hope we cross paths again. I, I would I, I would love to take you up on that dinner offer someday, and I'll start thinking oh, about what's on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you again, right. and, and uh, yeah, and, and keep keep exploring. Uh, Likewise, thanks to you. Out there. Thanks for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. Well, so there you have it, two really important books um, to read, enjoy, and learn from. And uh, after you do that, be sure to come back next week for more insight into the culinary world. And until, until then, then, we can say bye-bye. Bye-bye.